0: All right, well, of course, Jeremiah, called the weeping prophet, one of the four major prophets. Forgive me, as a um, result of my throat cancer, the radiation, my mouth gets dry, so I forget to slap in uh, these mints to help me keep things uh, moist so I can uh, talk a little bit uh, easier. Uh, again, one of the, uh, called the weeping prophet, one of the four major prophets in Scripture, or considered the major prophets. Of course, they're all major But um, we want to look at the time or the area of time in which um, Jeremiah was ministering. Uh, You look at the history, and you know that the southern kingdom was separated from the northern kingdom after King Solomon's reign because of his uh, disobedience in the latter part of his uh, administration. And we know that the north immediately went. (laughs) I was about to say the north immediately went south. That's not intended to be cute, but the north immediately went into idolatry and wound up facing judgment in 722 B.C. when they were captured by the Assyrian Empire. The south had a little over another 100 years more as God was trying to get their attention. And, of course, there was a mix of good kings and bad kings. These here, you see, about a 200-year span, beginning in Uzziah, where he was a good king. And you see the green is the good kings, the red are the bad kings. We get down to Josiah, which is the central figure in the study of Jeremiah, because Josiah was a great king, and he was the last of the great kings. He really was passionate about a revival in Judah, and he set about and did everything he could. His heart was absolutely sensitive to the Lord and wanted to be in accordance with with Yahweh, God Almighty's will. Uh, unfortunately, we look at it from the outside and we read through the Scripture. We say, oh, that must have been a period of, of greatness in Judah's history. must have been some real spiritual sensitivity. Well, as we're seeing in Jeremiah, not so much. Uh, Josiah and a remnant was passionately in love with the Lord and obedient. But the overwhelming majority, it seems... Their hearts never came back to God. After Manasseh's reign and going off into idolatry, the people seemed to love it that way and held on to that. So, Josiah had a reign of roughly three decades. And in the middle, actually the 13th year of Josiah's reign, when you would think over a 30-year period of what we would call righteous leadership, You would say on year thirteen they're still on the uptick. My goodness, they're they're not even at the halfway point of this great king's ministry. But it was at this period that God called Jeremiah to a very unpopular calling, as we're going to see emphasized this evening. And Josiah, excuse me, Jeremiah began preaching repentance. Well, why the official position of the administration was correct. However, we're going to see that the hearts of the prophets, the priests, the other magistrates, and the people as a whole were still far from God and and bound into idolatry. So God had promised that He would not judge Judah until after Josiah's death. That's why we've got him as a central figure here. And of course, it was during 17 years of, of the 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry were while Josiah was still reigning. After Josiah's death, they immediately lost their autonomy. Uh, They were subject originally, or Judah is what I mean by they. Judah and the king of, of Judah was subject to Egypt for a couple of years, then subject to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. These four kings that you see listed under Josiah covered a period of around 20 years, the last 20 years of Jeremiah's ministry. These men were largely bad. You see Zedekiah there in yellow. He really wanted to do the right thing, but he was just a weak leader and was easily influenced by his counselors to do the wrong thing. So it was during this entire period of time, midway through Josiah, as you see on the screen, all the way down through Zedekiah is the 40 years in which Jeremiah's ministry uh, encompassed. Now, you see on the screen, 609 is when Josiah was killed. At that point, God's uh, restrictions on judging Judah ended because he said, I'll not judge you until after good King Josiah is dead. Well, Josiah died in 609, and we see things begin to unfold rapidly. Now, there are three what we consider contemporary major prophets. Uh, Isaiah was one of the major prophets, but he lived about a, a century ahead of these other guys. But Jeremiah... Spent his entire four decades in Jerusalem. Now, remember two groups of threes, three prophets and three sieges. Uh, Jerusalem lost its autonomy in 606 to Nebuchadnezzar. And at that point in time is when Daniel was taken captive back to Babylon. And Daniel spent the remainder of his days, beginning as a teenager, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15, when he was taken captive. Of course, we know his history. He served inside the cabinet. He was a magi, a magistrate, a counselor to the king. So Daniel served, as you can see on the arrow, in the capital city of Babylon. Um, City of Jerusalem was taken at this point without a fight. They just simply were subject to, uh, to Egypt. And they, um, uh, they transferred their subjugation from Egypt uh, to Babylon. But the city wasn't actually laid siege to and captured. Well, they stopped paying taxes and started rebelling a little bit against the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And in 597, he sent the military, Nebuchadnezzar sent the military back down to Jerusalem. And this time, again, they surrendered without a fight. It was at this particular, I call it siege, but it really wasn't a siege. They surrendered without a fight. It was at this time that Ezekiel was taken captive. And you see his place on the map. He served his entire ministry as a prophet ministering to the refugees, the Jewish refugees, in captivity in Babylon in a city called Tel Aviv, a refugee city about 50 miles south of the capital city of Babylon. Roughly another 10, 11 years passed before Jerusalem was finally conquered. At this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. They laid siege. It was a horrible siege, which is some of the details are spelled out in the book of Lamentations. There was such want at this period of time that literally uh, parents ate their own babies and ate their own children because they were that hungry. And God has a way of humbling us in our pride and arrogance. So you see, these three prophets, Jeremiah was the senior, but they were all contemporaries, serving God in different areas of the world. Ezekiel to the Jewish refugees in captivity, Daniel there in the capital city, literally to Nebuchadnezzar, and inside his cabinet, Jeremiah spent this entire uh, time serving in his home, uh, serving in and around the city of Jerusalem. And as I've shared every week, we would call it a largely fruitless ministry. However, he did exactly what God had called him to do. Now, picking up in chapter 14, verse 1, we're going to see a conversation between God and Jeremiah. I've identified who is speaking. And basically, you know, my oldest brother Dave used to say, I've had it up to here, I can't take it anymore. Well, God had had it up to here. The time for repentance was over. And once that invitation is over, it's done. You know, we read in Revelation in chapter 3, it's see a picture of, of the Messiah knocking on the door of one's heart. And the reason he is knocking because all he can do is knock and desire entrance. It's up to us to open the door. And invite him in. But eventually, the Lord will stop knocking. And if the Lord stops calling, then we in our unregenerate, wicked hearts will not seek him. Once God's invitation is retracted, it's over. And we're going to see here a, a, a balance, actually a conflict between Jeremiah uh, pleading and still preaching repentance... But God's saying, listen, it's too late. The people are not going to repent. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth, the drought and the subsequent famine that would come about on Judah. Judah mourns, and the gates thereof languish. The gates speaks of the gates are what we would call town square. And obviously it's not in the center of the city, but at the gate of the city. And it was there that was the center of commerce as the markets would be set up. It was there that judgment took place in the gates as the elders of the city would convene there for all to witness. The gates thereof languish. Commerce is going to languish. The gates are, think uh, idiomatically, dressed in black as if they are mourning the cry of Jerusalem goes up, God help us. And their nobles have sent their little ones to fetch water. And they came to the cisterns and found the cisterns empty. And they returned with their vessels empty. And they were disappointed greatly. And they were mourning because of the situation that they were in. Yea, the does even will bear their calf or, or their, their baby deer and forsake it because there's nothing to feed it. And the wild asses will stand on the mountains out in the, out in the wilderness and they'll be looking for, 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 for something to eat. And they'll be sniffing the air trying to find the scent of something they can eat. But there is no grass. Now this dearth, understand, is God's judgment. First of all, put a couple of cross-references up here what it means to have your head covered. We see that when Mordecai was recognized and elevated and Haman was was, uh, just absolutely discouraged and depressed over the events that had taken place, it says that Haman uh, was in mourning and returned to his house having his head covered. So that was a physical, visible sign of mourning. David... When Absalom had rebelled against him, and David was forced to flee the city of Jerusalem as he ascended up the Mount of Olives, and he wept and went barefoot, again a sign of service and also a sign of mourning, and all the people that went with David had their heads covered, again, as they wept, this is a sign of mourning. So again, we see here that the whole city, because of the situation they find themselves in, will be in mourning. Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah will be in mourning. Now it says here that they sought water and they sent their youngsters to get water. You see on the screen some pictures of some cisterns. This one happens to be in Qumran. They're in the southern part of, of Judah. Uh, notice a picture of the map up here. And understand that some of the other rival civilizations literally didn't depend on rainfall uh, to provide for their crops, but it was the flooding of the river basin that fertilized their crops and, and provided for the sustenance. The Nile River would flood, and it was from that that the Egyptians would be able to harvest their crops. Up in uh, Mesopotamia, the Euphrates River would flood. And it was from that flooding that their ground would be so fertile, and they would be able to raise crops and feed their families. But you look at this map of Israel, and it's a largely arid climate. As a matter of fact, the top half of the map is very green and mountainous, but the southern half of this map is called the Negev, which is Hebrew for desert. And you look on the western border, and you see the Mediterranean Sea. Salt water. You can't drink it. can't water your crops with it. You see in the southern, uh, uh, the southeastern corner of this map, you see the Dead Sea as the Jordan River flows into it. That also is salt water. And if we ever get a chance to go back to Israel again... Uh, we always spend time, at least a day at the Dead Sea, and let everybody go out and, and float. It's amazing. The, the salt density is so high that you cannot sink. I mean, you can be 100 yards, 200 yards from shore, and you can literally stand in the water. Obviously, your feet aren't touching anything, but you can just stand there without having to paddle or anything, and you are buoyant like a bobber in water because of the density of the salt. Obviously, there's no life in the Dead Sea. You can't drink it. You can't use it to water your crops. Literally, Judah and Israel, or the entire area that we would call the, 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 the promised land, was dependent upon God's rain flow. The early and the latter rains, beginning in some September, ending in February. If it rained, the cisterns filled. Uh, If it snowed up on Mount Moriah, all of that would flow down into actually three rivers would come together and feed the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee would feed the Jordan River, and it would be a constant supply of fresh water. But without this rain, the Holy Land dies very quickly. Without the living water, they die very quickly. And God had told them before they ever were allowed entrance into the promised land that if they did things his way, God would bless them. And if they didn't do things this his way, God would judge them and curse them. We see in Leviticus chapter 26 a specific reference to droughts. He said, "I will give you, do it my way, I will give you rain when rain is due, and the land shall yield her increase." And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your harvest of your grains shall continue up until you harvest your fruit, and the harvest of the fruit will continue until it's time to to sow and harvest your grain. There will be plenty of bread to eat, and you will dwell in your land safety, safely. However, if you don't do it my way, then thy heaven that is over thee shall be As brass. Remember, brass is a symbol of judgment. And the earth that is under thee shall be iron. Picture it so hard that you cannot even stick a till in the ground. And even if you could dig a hole and bury a seed, it wouldn't produce anything because it's just stony. And the Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. From heaven shall it come down upon thee until thou be destroyed. So again, This was given before they ever even entered into the promised land. And God told them, if you do it my way, I'll bless you. If you don't do it my way, I'll judge you. As a matter of fact, he goes into more detail in Leviticus 26, verses 25 and 26. If I have to chastise you, I'll bring the sword upon you, and I will avenge the quarrel of my covenant. Now, you have broken my covenant. And when you're gathered together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you as you're locked up in there and they're surrounded by the enemy. And I will send famine. That's what that means by breaking of the staff of bread. And then you get some details. Normally, each woman would bake her own bread in her own oven. But there is so little grain that you now have 10 women sharing one oven because they're having, notice it says, measuring out the bread by weight. They're having to ration it Because there is going to be an incredible shortage. So God said, you do it my way, I'm going to bless you. You don't do it my way, I'm going to judge you. What we just saw in Jeremiah 14 is them reaping the fruit of God's judgment. They send their kids, their youngsters, their servants, hey, run down to the cistern, bring some water from that to the household. And they come back disappointed and embarrassed because there is no water. And they are going to die of thirst and they're going to die of want. Jeremiah responds to God now. O Lord, though we have got a long list of iniquities testifying against us. Boy, we have done plenty. We deserve it. But do thou show mercy on us for your name's sake. Let me read this through and then I'll come back. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, Savior... In time of trouble. Don't act like a stranger to us. Don't act like someone just passing through the land, staying the night. We're, we're your people. Lord, act as a mighty man coming to save us. Lord, we're your people. You dwell in the midst of us. We're called by, the, by, called by your name. Don't forget about us. Now, verse 7 begins with a tactic that we see used by God's prophets throughout Scripture. Going and interceding to God, not because we deserve it, but because of God's great mercy and because of His name. Consider, as an example, when Abraham was interceding to God on behalf of Sodom. Sodom was certainly not worthy of mercy, but Abraham loved his nephew and wanted to see God spare uh, Sodom. So what did Abraham say? Abraham said, Lord, you certainly won't judge the righteous along with the wicked. Oh, Lord, you couldn't possibly... Now, imagine trying to outsmart God in a game of chess. Well, this is using some really good Dale Carnegie techniques, trying to win flins and influence people, and, and quite frankly, reminding God of Scripture, not like He's forgotten it, but praying Scripture is laying hold of an absolute promise. Not just what our hope is, but something that God has said he will do. So Abraham used a similar tactic, saying, Lord, you won't destroy the righteous with the wicked, will you? Moses used the same tactic. You remember after Israel had disobeyed shortly after coming out of captivity, God said, now he wasn't going to do this, but it was a chance for Moses to intercede. God said, step aside, Moses. I'm done with these people. I'm going to judge them. Moses said, oh, Lord, you can't do that. Think about your reputation. You know, you just freed them from Egypt. Now, if you bring them out here just to kill them, what are they going to say about you? So the same tactic is used here. God, we don't deserve it. Our sins are many. But Lord, you are our Savior. By the way, that term, hope for Israel, is an interesting word. It's a messianic term. The Hope of the people of Israel, the regathering of Israel, the mercy that God will pour out on them. God will deliver Israel ultimately. You see in Joel 3, you see a reference that will be to the great and terrible day of the Lord, which quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I think is soon, when God will pour out His judgment on planet Earth and all those that have hated Him and shaken their fist in His face and have hated His people. But notice Joel 3.16, notice the reference here. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, and the Lord will be the hope of Israel, the hope of His people, and the strength of the children of Israel. It's this same reference that Paul acknowledged when he was standing before, uh, what, Festus and um, uh, Herod Agrippa, and he was pleading his case. Uh, and he was talking about, hey, the reason I am in bondage, the reason I am in change, is because I actually believe those things. It's for the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. So Jeremiah is interceding, saying, God, we don't deserve it. But, Lord, we're your people. We're called by your name. And although we don't deserve it for your own namesake, Lord, have mercy. Lord, rescue us from Quite frankly, the the just judgment that we deserve. But Lord, we have no salvation other than in you. God responds, thus saith the Lord unto his people. Thus they have loved to wander, and they have not restrained their feet from wandering. Therefore the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and visit their sins. In other words, it's payday. I've been patient, I've been patient, I've been patient, but I've had it up to here. I'm not taking any longer. You're going to pay the price now. Then the Lord said unto me, now imagine this, God telling Jeremiah. And again, the thing that's really amazing when you consider it is God called Jeremiah for this ministry. God knew exactly what he was calling to do. And Jeremiah obediently did exactly what God called him to do. But notice here at the midpoint, God tells Jeremiah, don't intercede for them any longer. Don't pray for these people because I'm not listening. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they go through the motions of going to the temple to offer burnt offerings and oblation, I will not accept them. Here's what I will do. I'm going to consume them. By the way, this is consistent, these judgments. You'll see these all the way over in Revelation 6 and throughout by uh, throughout the scripture i will send the sword i will send famine and i will send disease to judge them then said i jeremiah oh lord god behold the prophets are saying unto them you're not going to see the sword neither are you going to see the famine neither are you going to have any problems you're assured peace in this place now remember what God had promised them before they ever came into the promised land. Did God promise to bless Israel? Yes. Did God promise to judge Israel in their disobedience? Yes. Had they been obedient? No. So what's coming? Okay. In their disobedience, the popular preachers, I'll not name names, but I could... The health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, your best life now, preachers, said, you got nothing to worry about? Don't worry about the 62 million babies you've slaughtered in America. Don't worry about promoting Marxism. Don't worry about chasing uh, me out of public education and doing away with prayer in the Bible in schools. Don't worry about redefining marriage. You don't have nothing to worry about. We're God's people. Actually, you know, we still have in God we trust written on our currency, do we not? We don't have anything to worry about. Wrong. We do have plenty to worry about, as did they. These false preachers were preaching this feel-good message. And don't you know the people liked it? In fact, about a hundred years earlier, Micah, who was preaching when the great revival under King Hezekiah came about, talking about the preachers of his day, saying, The heads thereof judge for reward. In other words, even the judges in the courts of justice are bribed. The priests preach for hire, they're hirelings, and the prophets also prophesy for money. So they're hirelings. Again, just a reminder, what's the difference between a priest and a prophet? A priest is who makes intercession to God on behalf of man. A prophet is who brings the word from God to man. All were corrupt, Micah said. So these were false prophets in their day, preaching for filthy lucre and popularity. Jeremiah 7, as we saw a few weeks ago, said this. God said, don't trust in the lying words of these prophets. They point to the temple and say, don't worry. We're God's people. There's nothing to worry about. Look, there's Solomon's temple right there in the middle. God lives right here with us. Nothing's going to happen. Jeremiah said, don't believe it. God said, don't believe it. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. You steal, you murder, you commit adultery, you deceive each other by swearing falsely, you burn incense into Baal, you live your life after pagan gods whom you don't know that aren't your God that didn't bring you out of bondage. And then you come to my house on Sunday mornings and you bring an offering, you call out to me and you expect me to hear. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? The old even I have seen it, saith the Lord." But if you want to see what I'm going to do to you, go and look at Shiloh, where the tabernacle first sat for 370 years, and see what happened there because of disobedience. The same thing is going to happen here. So again, you've got two groups of prophets. You've got Jeremiah out here preaching repentance, going to the temple uh, and preaching to the people, going to the temple, preaching repentance. And then you've got the popular preachers preaching everything's going to be just fine. God loves you just the way. You don't need to change anything. Go ahead and continue to cheat each other in business. Go ahead and continue to take advantage of those that are less fortunate. Go ahead and continue to to cheat on your wives and and fall into the bed of adultery. God's not upset with us. He loves us just the way we are. Not true, obviously. That message was well received. It was very popular. The people liked that kind of preaching. But that wasn't the word from God. Verse 14, God said, These prophets prophesy lies, and they claim my name. I didn't send them. I didn't command them. They don't speak for me. They prophesy unto you a false vision and a false divination and a thing that will come to nothing. They are prophesying the deceit of their own hearts. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not, yet they say, the sword and the famine shall not be in this land. <laughs> That's what they say, but guess what? The sword and the famine shall devour and destroy these same prophets. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall not have anybody to bury them. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, For I will pour their wickedness out upon them. They are going to get exactly what they deserve. Therefore thou shalt say this unto them. Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease. For the pure children of my people. Again, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be God's people in the midst of the Gentile world, drawing the entire world to the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were to be holy as their God was holy. That's what that reference, the virgin daughter, the purity of my people, which is supposed to be, but it wasn't. If I go forth into the field, then I will find dead bodies there as a result of this coming judgment. If I go into the city... Guess what I'm going to find there? Dead bodies there because of the famine, because of the pestilence. Both the prophet and the priest that are telling you, you've got nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be okay. It's your best life now. Even those guys, they're going to be killed and or they're going to be carried away captive into a strange land. Hast thou utterly rejected Judah, Jeremiah says? Hath thy soul loathed Zion? Why have you smitten us? And there is no healing for us. We looked for good, but there is no good. We look for healing, but all we found is trouble. Oh, we acknowledge, O oh Lord. We acknowledge our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers. For we have sinned against you. Oh, don't hate us. Lord, for, for, for your name's sake, the fact that we're your people, you are God. Don't disgrace the throne of thy glory. Again, he is appealing to God's reputation and God's mercy and God's promises rather than what they actually deserve. Don't break thy covenant with us, verse 21. Are there any among the pagan vanities of the Gentiles, the idols of the Gentiles, that can cause it to reign? or that can cause the heavens to pour out showers, are not thou he, O Lord our God? You're it. Other than you, there is none other. Lord, we look to you for mercy. We look to you for provision. Therefore, we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. Folks, that's a a, a verse that we can spend a a month on. And let me just say this: it's difficult to wait on the Lord. We all I don't know, you're, you're probably wired some like I, somewhat like I am. I want to fix things. I want to get involved, I want to deal with it. I want to change direction. I want to get it settled. As I said while ago in our prayer, I have way too much Martha in me. And probably needs some more Mary. You remember Martha and Mary, the two sisters? Jesus and the disciples were there. They were hosting them. They were in their house. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And there was Martha busying herself, preparing the food, fetching the water, setting the table, cleaning the dishes, vacuuming the floor, everything you can just imagine. As she was running around making sure that the Lord and the guests were taken care of. And there was Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus, enjoying time with her Savior. Now, let me just ask a quick question. We're either out of God's will. No. No. But you can't be just one or the other. Obviously, we better spend time at the Savior's feet. Folks, let me tell you what. Every day, you better spend some time in your Bible. You better feed the spiritual you, or you will shrivel up uh, like a, a grape turns into a raisin. You better spend some time and let the Lord pour into you from Scripture every day. You better spend some time in prayer. And, folks, you know, the Bible says, Paul said, pray without ceasing. A Jew had a tendency of taking god 's direction and trying to systematize everything. Literally, there were some hundred different prayers a Jew, a devout Jew, would implement in, a, in, a, in each day. And the point was good: recognizing god 's blessing in everything. Uh, but you can't systematize it. it 's got to be natural, it 's got to be a relationship. It's not just, okay, I've done my morning prayer. Okay, I've done the next prayer. Okay, I've done the next prayer. No, it's the constant realization that you're walking with the Lord and He's providing everything. So as you go throughout the day, you need to be in constant attitude of prayer, recognizing that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. There's no place you go that the Lord is not already there and going with you. I talk to the Lord all day long. I'm not sure how often He's listening. I think he's going to shut up, had it. Nip, 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 nip. But then you also need some prime just on your knees and just in focused prayer. And again, you know, we bow our heads. Bowing our heads doesn't automatically take us to heaven. Recognize the Lord is right here, the Lord is here. And if I was to have a conversation. For example, with Steve, I, I would turn my attention. If I, if I wasn't just talking in general, if I wanted to talk to Steve, I would turn my attention, my focus to Steve. I would make eye contact, and I would talk to Steve. Well, when we pray, the reason we close our eyes is to not be distracted. You know, you're, you're trying to shut out the movement and the activity that's going around you because you're focusing on talking to God, which is what prayer is bringing Him your praises, bringing Him your requests, bringing Him your petitions. The reason we bow our heads as a symbol is a sign of, of submission, uh, honor, a uh, sign of, of, of Him being the Lord, we being His creation and His children. And then the closing of the eyes is is simply to not allow visible things to distract us and to, to try to focus our thoughts and our attention or our conversation on Him. But, Martha was a worker. Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. I think we're in a time right now where we are going to have to just wait on the Lord. We've done about everything that we know to do to try to head off exactly where we're at right now. Over the last 15 years, we've been working on the Reclaiming America for Christ, trying to see an awakening in the church, trying to get pastors to understand that we're to be discipling our congregation in every facet of life. Jesus is the Lord of all of our lives, not just Sunday morning. And quite frankly, if someone can only tell you're a Christian because they happen to see you pulling into a church church parking lot on Sunday, then you probably aren't a Christian. And notice what what God condemned Israel of earlier, even in this chapter tonight, as we referenced, uh, did some cross-referencing. They went through the motions of going to temple, but what characterized their everyday lives? They deceived each other. They lied to each other. uh, They deceived each other in business. They cheated on their wives. They were unfaithful. Wait a second, get the point. If Jesus is the Lord of Sunday morning then that should be evident in all of your life. We as followers of Christ should be the most trustworthy people you can possibly come across. We should be the most generous uh, and, and gracious business owners, the most ethical businessmen and women. We should be the hardest working employees in the workforce. Everything that we do should cry out the fact that Jesus is, is Lord of us. We've tried to awaken the church. We've tried to awaken our country. We've tried to do things. For example, our efforts five years ago to use the Tenth Amendment. To um, forgive me, my, my my body just is achy. I gotta stay. I gotta move constantly, but. You know, when we, the reason we did the Protect Life and Marriage effort the way we did it five years ago was to try to demonstrate to states that states have the ability to say no. You know, there's nowhere in the Declaration of Independence that the general government has the authority simply to kill pre-born children. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. An unalienable right is the right to life. Your life just can't be arbitrarily forfeited, can't just be taken away from you. We tried to show that in the Constitution, the states only delegated few powers to the general government. If the state didn't give the general government permission to do it, then they can't do it. That's why we were trying to use the Tenth Amendment to end abortion through doctor's medical licensing. If we had been successful, the point was trying to teach states that when the federal government says you must redefine marriage, the States had the power to say no you don 't have the authority to make us redefine marriage. It was God that established marriage you don 't have the authority to make us redefine it you don 't have the authority to to uh, uh, make us legalize the murder of freeborn children and At the same time, if we had learned this lesson we 'd have been in a position right now where our governor could say, "Wait a second, uh, a corrupt, fraudulent election in Georgia can't take us into the bonds of of um, uh, communism. No, sorry, we're not going to go there. We have worked in every way that we know how to try to change course for where we're at. Guess what? We're where we're at. At this point, it's going to take a lot more Mary than it does Martha. And by the way, we're going to still continue to work we're going to do everything we know to do. I, I'm not wired any other way, neither is Dan. We work with all. We work as hard as we can, as under the Lord. But the reality is, we're in a position right now where either God is going to intervene and deliver us, or God is be, going to be glorified through His real church during a time of going through the furnace a little bit. And as we've talked about before. Folks, we think we're the rule. We're the exception to the rule. We're the only Christians in history that haven't been persecuted. We're the only followers of Yahweh that haven't been persecuted. Think back, back, go back to when there was only four people. Cain killed his brother Abel. We've enjoyed incredible liberty for the last couple hundred years. We may be not saying we are God. Can, we we may see a miracle, but we may be passing into a period where we have to endure hardship. And let me say this, I've said it before, but it's easy to stand up and say, praise the Lord when your wallet is fat and everything is going great and your family is healthy. It is a greater testimony to be able to say, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did to Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us But let this be known, O King, if God decides not to deliver us, if we wind up being burned alive in this fiery furnace, He's still God. And we're not going to compromise. We are still His children. Boy, there is a lot stronger testimony to be able to be faithful in a time of pressure than in a time of comfort. Now, that being said, I like the comfort. I'm spoiled. I much prefer that. But we may be passing from that. Just recognize that. Waiting on the Lord. Now we're at a point in time where we are working, but in reality, we know this. We work as hard as we can. We always have. And we recognize that unless God is in it, it's going to come to nothing. We trust God for everything. Reality is, when we go to the grocery store, we're still grateful. It's the reason we ask God or give thanks to the Lord before we eat dinner at night. Because we recognize that ultimately He is the one that's providing but we, I'm afraid, are coming into a period where we are really going to have to focus on just resting, trusting in God. We're going to carry just a couple of more verses because it continues this passage. We're going to stop here in just about verse 10 because we've got some deep water to get into next week. So here we've got Jeremiah, trying to intercede, saying, Lord God, for your name, we don't deserve it, but, but for your name's sake, uh, be merciful, redeem, protect us, deliver us. Then said God unto me, Jeremiah, even if Moses was to pray for the people, I'm not listening. Even if Samuel was to come back from the dead and intercede on behalf of the people, it's too late. Now, that's bringing out some heavy hitters. You know, Moses, there was no prophet like unto Moses. You know, Abraham and Moses and Samuel. I mean, if there was a Mount Rushmore in Israel, those faces would be on it. And God is emphasizing the fact with Jeremiah, nope, too late. Judgment's coming. Even if Moses interceded, too late. Even if Samuel, too late. I'm not listening. It shall come to pass if they say unto thee, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Uh, we're believers now. We see the Babylonian army surrounding the city. Uh, what should we do, Jeremiah? Where should we go now? Hey, Brother Dan. Hey, Brother Paul. Uh, what is this you were talking about, biblical worldview? What was this you were talking about, communism 10 years ago and trying to warn us not to go down this path? What were you saying? All right. Where should we go? Exactly. <laughs> when they ask you for direction, here's what I want you to tell them. Those that are ordained to die are going to die. Those that are going to die by the sword will die by the sword. Those that are going to die by the famine will die in the famine. Those that are carried off into captivity are going to be carried off into captivity. Boy, those are some comforting words, aren't they? And I will appoint over them four kinds. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag the carcasses off, the fowls to pick clean the flesh from the carcasses, and then the wild beast to carry away the bones. That is utter devastation. And I will cause them to be removed. now. notice this, all kingdoms, this has a bigger vision. I don't know if Jeremiah knew it or not, but this isn't just speaking of, uh, uh, of, of Babylonian captivity. This is global. I will cause them to be carried into all kingdoms of the earth because of their sin. In particular, Manasseh, who is known historically as the worst king in all of Judah's history. "'For who shall have pity upon thee, O Jerusalem? Or who shall bemoan thee? Or who shall go aside and ask how you're doing?' You have forsaken me, saith the Lord. You have drawn away from me. Therefore, because of your actions, I am going to stretch forth my hand against thee to destroy thee. I am weary of your phony, false saying of your sorry, saying that you're sorry. Imagine a a woman here who catches her husband in a bed of adultery. And the husband says, oh, honey, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And she says, okay. Okay. And the next week, she catches him again. And he says, oh, honey, I'm sorry. I really, really mean it this time. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And she says, okay. Imagine that same scenario being repeated week after week after week after week after week. Eventually, the wife is going to grow wise and say, "Uh uh-uh, we're done. Well, God's saying, I'm tired of you going through your phony repentance. I know you don't mean it. I know you're disobedient. I'm done. And I will fan them with a fan in the gates of the land. This is an idiom speaking of judgment. You've you've seen already as we've gone through the study talking about the refiner's fire, heating the metal up until it's liquid, and then you scrape the dross off the top. Well, fanning them with a fan, you see some pictures over there to the side. When you take your grain harvest and you take it and you beat it up, to where it separates from the husks, and then you throw it up in the air, and you throw it up in the air, you'll see that the chaff blows away, and only the seed falls down to the ground. That's idiomatic of judgment. God said, I am going to judge you. I am going to bereave them of children, and I'm going to destroy my people. Why? Because they will not repent and return from their wicked ways. Their widows are increased to me above the sand of the sea. In other words... The judgment that's coming, you're going to have more widows than there's sand in the seashore. Now, that's a lot of widows. I have brought upon them against the mother of the young men a spoiler at noonday. An invader, an army, a a persecutor. That term spoiler. I have caused them to fall upon it suddenly and terrors upon the city. She, being this mother, hath borne seven She that hath borne seven languisheth. She hath given up the ghost. Her son is gone down while it was yet day. She hath been ashamed and confounded. And the residue of them will I deliver to the sword before their enemies, saith the Lord. Here's what that's saying. To a Jew, to a Jewish mother, having a son was, in this culture, was the ultimate. That was a dream. Having seven sons, again, seven is a number of completion. There's seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale, seven, numbers, seven uh, colors in a rainbow. So a woman with seven sons, that is idiomatic of complete joy. She's got it all. She's got everything a woman could possibly hope for. However, her joy is going to be ripped away. Those seven sons are going to be taken And she is going to be without just as the sun going down in the midst of the the noonday. It's an idiom for complete and utter sorrow. We're going to stop at this verse because it launches a really interesting uh, study next week. Here's Jeremiah. Again, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He knew what was coming. He preached... His heart out and was hated. We saw in chapter 1 that his enemy would be his own political leaders, his own spiritual leaders, and his own fellow citizens. Well, that just pretty much covers about everybody. And what was he trying to do? He was trying to see them saved. He was trying to see them spared of judgment. But they hated this kind of preaching. By the way, people still hate this kind of preaching Here's Jeremiah. I wish I'd never been born. Woe is me. My mother that has borne me a man of my whole life. Strife, contention. Everybody hates me. Why? It's not like I'm a lender and I'm having to repossess because you can't pay your mortgage. I, that's not the situation. It's not like you've lent me money and I just refuse to repay you. You might have just reason for being mad at me. But I haven't done any of that. All I've done is try to stand up for the Lord, preach to my people repentance, and spare my country from this coming judgment. And what do I have out of all this? Everybody hates me. we are going to see Jeremiah pour out his heart next week and expand on this verse. But he literally you know, I've said before, I don't think pastors um, I believe that that ministry is a calling and not a job. And uh, I don't believe that Uh, a person grows up and says, hey, I want to go into this business to make a living. The people that I have seen God use in Scripture, whether it be Moses, whether it be Ezekiel, whether it be Jeremiah, uh, whether it be Jonah, you name it, most of them said, I don't want the job. I'm not capable. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't have the influence. I don't have the money. One reason or another, they made all sorts of excuses why they didn't want the job. But God would say, nope, that's exactly who I I want you to have the job because you don't want it. You're the guy that's going to have to lean on me. Jeremiah hated the ministry that he was in. He loved the Lord, wanted to be faithful to the Lord. But he knew, he knew it. He knew what was going on. He knew ultimately what was going to happen. And he hated being this um, basically... Rather than being mad at God, everybody just got mad at Jeremiah because Jeremiah was telling them what God had to say. And he was literally hated by everyone. Talk about a man on an island. I was talking with, with Pastor Dan a while ago. This is completely separate. There's no correlation between Jeremiah and President Trump. Jeremiah is way, way righteous. I mean, Trump, President Trump's been a good president. But let's face it, you know, the majority of his history, he was just an immoral man out of New York City. But I can't understand for the life of me the way, why people hate him the way they do. What has he done that would cause him to be hated? Been president for four years. He didn't ban abortion. So why did the libs hate him? He didn't do away with same-sex marriage. I mean, what, what did he do that made him so hated? Nevertheless... If you wanted to personify the hatred of the left, you would just put a picture of President Trump out there. Now, the reason I gave you that illustration is imagine that guy being Jeremiah. Everybody just hates him. He's all alone. He's by himself. Hates to see what's going on with his country. He's heartbroken. He's a patriot. He's a man of God. And man... (laughs) His life really stinks what 's that said, said right that 's exactly right that 's exactly right what 's that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. 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 not a not an enviable position that Jeremiah was in, and uh, we 're going to again dig into this a little bit more next week um, and i think we'll we 'll learn some things next week anyway. Tough, tough calling, tough message, tougher audience. As we saw in chapter 1, God told Jeremiah, this is basically going to be a fruitful, a fruitless ministry because these are hard-hearted, hard-headed people, but I've made your head just as hard, so you go do it. And he did faithfully for four decades just to see it all come down around him. So next week, we'll pick up here in verse 11 of chapter 15. We'll get through at least the rest of chapter 15. Possibly we'll get over into chapter 16 after that. What a timely study as you see what's going on in our country. Uh, And it's heartbreaking to see us abandon uh, our heritage and abandon the blessings of God. And unfortunately... um, Well, I'll just leave it at that. We'll pick it up next week. It's it's heartbreaking, and I hope you can see a correlation between Jeremiah and his calling in ministry and his patriotism and passion for the Lord and where we find ourselves here in the United States of America today.